Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In this next part of our exclusive special series with Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House, we delve into the debate around industrial policy. Does the U.S. need one, or does it violate our founding democratic principles? Or does it come down to how we define an industrial policy? Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you here again. Uh, it's always a pleasure being working with you on this issue. So we've covered several topics in our previous series, and it seems one part that often comes up is learning the fluidity that the Chinese regime and other countries have been operating under. But often the argument that comes up when it comes to applying that here is some would say, oh, well, skeptics would say, oh, that's just the united front, but in America. So how do we make sure we're not becoming like the Chinese regime? We're not losing our freedoms, for instance. Well. One of the big things, and it's actually been big in Washington for the last, what, two months, is the issue of industrial policy. Because so many people look, on both sides of the aisle, on China's national strategy. Okay? Right now, the industrial policy is the issue. And always the debate goes like this. We need industrial policy. Because people like China operate as a holistic entity and we're just a bunch of people operating independently, and there's no way China, with the size they are, working as a coherent team, is able to, well, there's no way that we can compete against them. So we have to have industrial policy. And then the other side comes and says, but industrial policy is against the democratic principles. So if we get industrial policy, we'll actually stop being in the United States. And we can't do that. So it's sort of like this ping-pong game that goes back and forth. We need it. We can't have it. But we need it. But we can't have it. And it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. There's two major problems. One is how they define industrial policy. Okay. And when we talk about industrial policy in China's case, it's their national technology strategy. That is their industrial policy. Okay. Now, the stuff that's around it the economics, the manpower, everything else, which is all the Americans see, is the peripheral parts, which we talked about before. But the core, which makes the decision, is their national technology strategy. That dictates what technologies they acquire worldwide, how they utilize them, the whole ball of wax. Okay. And we'll get back to actually how they do that, because that's a very, very important point. So the first thing is, from the American side, we don't define industrial policy correctly. And number two, they look at industrial policy from a finance-based perspective. Okay? With those two in place, it gets into this no-win argument that's been going on for 40 years. So, and actually, like, like I alluded to before, we were labeled in our hearings to Congress after Socrates got uh, defunded that the reason it was defunded because it was, quote, industrial policy. As we said, not by the way you guys define it, we're not industrial policy. So how do they define it wrong? Americans, and this is not just the common person, this is not the layman, not the guy you know, just watching TV, it's the experts, it's the guys in Congress and everything else. They define industrial policy as government-centric planning. Soviet Union style, where back in the Soviet days, the Soviet top 
would define what they're going to do, and it would trickle down until it finally gets down to the guy who's actually executing it, and he's got his marching orders. It's very rigid. Um, it's very inefficient. It's very, very rigid. I mean, it's just, you know, you got a guy 2,000 miles away, if you're making a decision on what you're going to produce down here, and think the world changes, the competition changes, and what have you. Very inefficient. But that's how they define it. So every time you say, let's talk about industrial policy, that's all I think of. Government makes decisions to the entire competitive ecosystem. In actuality, industrial policy is any times there is procedures or rules or regs or whatever which influence a country's ability to be competitive. That's industrial policy. And even if we look at it from a government point of view, the United States has tons of industrial policy. So when DOD decides what technologies to fund and what not to fund, that's industrial policy. When Department of Agriculture puts out certain things to the farmers to say, you can't produce that, you can't produce that, here's the subsidies if you don't produce that, if you don't produce it, we will give you all the money for, your crop, for the crops you didn't produce. That's industrial policy. Okay, even by their definition of government-centric, we have tons of industrial policy. I've written a, t a whole bunch on this, 500 pages. That's in one book. So we have industrial policy. But here's the bit worse prop the better the bigger problem is that government or industrial policy is not just government centric. So you can have procedures, things like this, which influence, dictate, strongly guide the country's competitiveness without it coming from the government. Okay. So this Soviet Union style stuff is that little narrow area right that in the whole definition of industrial policy. Okay. Now, before we get back to the U.S., in the second part, China, when they were in doing their technology, national technology strategy, they spent a lot of time looking at the Soviets and their failures. And they looked at the government-centric lockstep execution. They looked at that and said, that's very rigid, that's very ineffective. And actually that, rock, that lockstep rigidness of, of the Soviets' industrial policy is one of the things Socrates was online to totally exploit. And it's one of the things that scared the Soviets into the negotiations. Okay, what did China do? Well, if we look at industrial policy, in Socrates, we looked at the full range of industrial policies. And we saw that there's a whole different ways to execute them. Industrial policy, national strategy, Soviet Union lockstep formation, or symbiotic relationships. Okay, That's Japanese. In symbiotic relationships, it's where nobody dictates, but yet you figure out how you can work together as a team where each side is getting what they want. Okay. Give an example, real simple, put it on simple terms. Miti de develops in Japan, the Japanese organization, a technology strategy, okay, which is designed in broad brush to use the companies, use in a very general way, the way they want to be used. Okay. 
it may see from the media's point of view that, you know what, there's a lot of opportunity in microelectronics. We have a lot of the technology capabilities in microelectronics already. So why don't the country we decide that we want to go after microelectronics? Okay, cool. That's part of their technology strategy. Now here comes a small little company. Looks at it and says, you know what? The more I cooperate with that objective, the more other resources I'm going to have leverage. Because if this little company says, you know, if I start producing some of the parts or doing the research into certain technologies which are needed for the national objective, I can now leverage other organizations' technology strategy in the full spectrum. In the sense of simple terms, they go to the bank and say, look, national technology strategy is we're going into microelectronics, we're doing this, 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 this is where we have a competitive advantage, here's something I'm going to be able to develop, which will go right into that. The bank looks at that and says, that's pretty cool, because now we know that our lending you money, or if, you're a v, if we get VC money, it's low risk. Because the country's moving in that direction, and if you're supporting that move, that means your market go, is going to be there and grow significantly. So therefore, we're going to make a low-risk investment in the bank, or if it's a VC, or if it's a bank loan, or whatever. Okay? So neither side is dictating to the other. But as a team, they're figuring out how can they work together such that I got a company now that's going to be very, very competitive, make all my financial numbers, and we're going to have a country which is very strong because we're moving into markets where we as a country will have a competitive advantage because we're working together as a team. That's symbiotic relationships in simple terms. So the first problem is it's not government-centric. So if you define industrial policy as that full range, you will see it does not violate free market, things like that. But here's the second problem with Americans when it comes to industrial policy. They address it from a financial perspective, okay? where they say, hmm, industrial policy means we in the government, because government-centric, of course, have to figure out where to put money because we're going to pick winners and losers. Or as one person says, just don't pick the losers, just pick the winners. And if you're picking the winners, that by default you're saying the other guy's the loser, right? So their perspective is the only thing that you're going to play with or influence is the money. So now industrial policy is nothing more than the government deciding where it should take the tax dollar and invest it as a winning industry or a winning market or whatever. As we just have been discussing, that's not, where, that's not how you generate a competitive edge. It's in the technology exploitation. So to effectively address the debate about industrial policy, first of all, we have to correctly define it okay, as that full range of ways that you can come up with a national, you can get the nation to work in a coherent fashion. Okay. And number two, that plan has to be from a technology perspective, not a finance perspective. Because finance does not generate the competitive advantage. The technology generates the competitive advantage, which then dictates the finance. Okay, you make those two changes, and you've got Socrates. 
That was Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And after the break, we continue our exclusive special coverage with Michael Sikora. Now that we've defined what an industrial policy is, what does a successful one look like in action? And how is it defined under the Socrates Project? That and more in just a minute, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now that we've defined what an industrial policy is, what does a successful one look like in action? And how is it defined under the Socrates Project? We looked at that problem in the 80s for, for uh, President Reagan. And we saw the way to deploy Socrates in the United States was symbiotic relationships, okay, and technology-based, which is exactly what it needs to be. So the way Socrates was, was supposed to be deployed, as defined by uh, President Reagan executive order, was a central planning tool. Okay? And that central planning tool basically was going to serve two groups. One was to develop a national technology strategy. Well, the national technology strategy was done by what was called the National Technology Strategy Board. And actually in 2010, Congressman Frank Wolf came to us and said, we need to deploy Socrates. And I said, the first step is deploying the National Technology Strategy Board, which looks at developing national technology strategy, as well as oversees the utilization by the rest of the ecosystem, U.S. Commerce ecosystem. That legislation was passed in 2010. It's still sitting on the books. So you've got a board of representation from academia, industry big and small, government, state and federal, everything else, which looks at the system and says, where as a country do we have strengths that we can exploit against the adversaries? Because we're starting in Socrates, this, the board starts off by looking at the entire world's technology strategies. So we're looking in detail at China's national technology strategy. Which technologies, which industries, how they're maneuvering in there, what their near, mid, and long-term objectives are, what their speed, efficiency, and agility is, which is very, very low. And they can sit back from a broad back, back, broad brush, brush perspective and say, hmm, we are very strong in this area, but if we go with NATO in this, we can do a cross-pollination, which will increase this. So in a broad brush, as symbiotic relationships are, all of a sudden, we have a national technology strategy, which is based upon how we exploit the technology. That then supports things like the CHIPS Act. Because right now, they're also talking about, well, CHIPS was a good start, but we need to do the same thing for AI and quantum and things like that, which is going to be another half a trillion before they're done, another half a trillion, another half a trillion. So it's just poor money out there. Instead of that, we now have how we exploit technology for a competitive edge. Now, that national technology strategy is the starting point. Now, you've got all these organizations which comprise the U.S. competitive ecosystem, which is both public and private, major, minor, the whole ball of wax. Because every organization throughout the United States, public, private, has one objective and one objective only, to generate and maintain a competitive advantage. But what is a competitive advantage? Correctly defined, competitive advantage is the ability to satisfy the customer need better than the other guy. Everything else is eyewash. Everything else either supports that or is a result of that. Okay? And all this financial thing is above that. Okay? 
So you have all these organizations that have that as objective, and the way they can obtain that objective, achieve that objective, is by exploiting the technology more effectively than the other guy. Okay? So now you've got all the public, U.S. public and private organizations, and when we talk about security, we'll talk security another day, have access to the system. Okay? They can look at all of technology space. They can look at the national technology strategy, which, again, there's a security issue, which we'll talk another day about. And they could say, hmm, the whole country is moving in this direction, as decided by the board. And I see where I can fit into that. But I also see, from my own perspective, something else. I see we're going to move into, let's say, plastics. Dumb example, but a simple example. And I know I can't compete with China. And I know from my technology that the reason I can't compete financially is because my materials, the actual plastic which I've developed, is substandard, so I have a lot of rejection rates. Okay. But my Pultruder, the equipment that actually makes the product, I got the top-notch technology that we developed. Okay, cool. But I still can't compete because my rejection rate's too much for the plastics. But I look across technology space to another company, actually in the same town. He's got great, great material technology. But his Pultruders are pretty bad. This is all open source information. There's nothing sensitive about this, believe me. Okay. So the guy from this company says, you know what, I'm going to go call him up, say, you know what, I see you've got a real problem with your, with your pultruders, but great plastics. I've got great plastics, but problems with my pultruders. Or is it the other way around? I don't remember. But the point is, he looks at it and says, yeah, you're right. Let's leverage. I, if I can use your pultruder technology, you can use my plastics technology, okay? And when we look at it, we see we'll both have a competitive advantage. That's a symbiotic relationship. But Socrates allows those relationships to be seen in detail. So now we can see that the country's going into, poly, into plastics, simple example, and my little company can be competitive in plastics against China when I do a symbiotic relationship with this other guy's company right down the street, okay? So symbiotic relationships are developed throughout the entire country where countries or organizations are leveraging each other's technology exploitation. And how they leverage the technology exploitation then dictates all the other resources like money, manpower, natural resources. The final results from all this is technology throughout the entire United States is exploited in a, in a highly coherent but flexible and independent fashion. Why? Because all the decisions that are being made are basically free market, I can do whatever I want. But I can see looking at all of technology space by looking at the national strategy that this is the most effective way for me to go. So now technology throughout the entire country is developed with a level of coherency, speed, efficiency, and agility that China cannot match. Okay, now, because remember, we're doing as a science, they're doing as an art. But here's the real cool thing. As we talked about, how effectively you exploit the technology relative to the competition fully dictates the amount of other resources you need and how you must deploy them. Other resources being uh, money, manpower, natural resources, what have you. So if this, the technology, 
is exploited with unprecedented speed agility, speed efficiency and agility, as well as no coherent but agile, independent manner, what's that mean about all the stuff above it? It's also exploited in the same fashion. Now all of a sudden we've got all the resources of the United States being exploited with an extreme coherency in a very logical, coherent fashion, but with unprecedented speed, efficiency, and agility in an independent manner. All that China cannot match. This is why Reagan loved the Socrates Project. So the automated innovation gives speed, efficiency, and agility, and the coherency is a force multiplier of the speed, efficiency, and agility. The automated innovation executing as a science. That's how Socrates was designed to be executed, and that will allow us to ensure China does not achieve their national objective. Not by decoupling or going manufacturing or whatever. It does sound like by actually going back to, say, the technology-based starting point, then the money would follow instead of trying to chase the money and then somehow you lose it. But on this note, any last words? We know what needs to be done. Uh, Socrates was totally vetted by the White House Congress, a lot of support. Um, it's got 40 years on the problem. So all these little things that are popping up right now are things we've addressed and we know how to handle. And the bottom line is the US, NATO, EU, it, uh, and democracy and freedom around the world can be made safe again for generations. Well, I definitely want to get into the hot war and other topics, but for today, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. Be sure to tune in next week for the next part in this exclusive special series, where we'll tackle the topic of a hot war with China and whether or not we're ready for it. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. See you soon.